0: Mm -hmm. This evening I'd like to speak about the parami of renunciation, which isn't such a popular subject in our society. Uh, In our society, there's a lot talked about regarding the pursuit of happiness, which usually involves profit, status, getting and achieving material things. Everywhere you look around us, it's like that. So in my Dharma reading, I actually came across a cartoon strip that had a lot of wisdom in it. And um, as you keep going in the Dharma, you can read anything, and it becomes the Dharma. (laughs) (laughs) So how many of you know of Hagar the Horrible? You've read that one? Yeah? There's some pretty interesting stuff that comes out of that. Uh, cartoon strip. Anyway, this one had a pretty pithy perspective that I want to share with you. So just try to picture this. There are four frames. In the first frame, there's Hagar climbing up a steep mountain. He's huffing and puffing away. And in the second frame, he meets a wide sage at the top, The sage has a long white beard and he's sitting in lotus posture. And he says, Hagar says to him, Oh, great sage, please tell me the secret of happiness. So in the third frame, the sage replies, Simplicity, Renunciation. And so the fourth frame, Hagar says to him, Is there anyone else up here I can talk to? (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't like that answer. (laughs) So along with renunciation, I'm adding a subtitle, which is The Happiness of Letting Go. The Happiness of Letting Go. It's important to point out that the practice of renunciation has to have two sides to it before we can really feel willing to go into the practice of renunciation. The first side is the one that's better known. It's a side of letting go of something, maybe of a material thing, maybe of an experience that we don't need to have anymore, that we keep going to. Maybe it's an attitude, maybe letting go of a wrong understanding or something about our past that we keep going back to and keep fueling. In the deepest sense though, renunciation is about relinquishing greed, hatred, and delusion. It might not necessarily be the thing but the attachment to the thing. It might not necessarily be an attitude but kind of an, an attachment to the attitude because of habit. So that's the first side of renunciation. These two sides are like the front and the back of a single hand, the same hand. The second side of renunciation is letting go into something. Not just letting go of something, but it's letting go into something. It's letting go into generosity or openness, for example. Letting go into loving-kindness, goodwill wisdom, to name just a few of the deeper values. The Pali word for renunciation, as you've been reading every evening, is nekama. nekama. It means actually to go forth. The analogy is to go out from a place that is confined and dusty and into a very wide open, spacious place where there's a A lot of fresh air to breathe, it's much more clear, it's not tight, it feels very easeful in that place. So this word nekama is more about gaining a sense of clarity, a sense of freedom, a sense of relaxation. It's more about letting go into something beneficial, from something that really hasn't been that beneficial when we look at it honestly and in the long term. So it's not about a deprivation. It's more about an unburdening, if we can look at it that way. Letting go is an unburdening. I was once, um, one of the retreats that I took in Burma which I usually take every year. Um, I was coming in to do the report to our teacher, Seyada Upandita, and it was a particularly difficult time of retreat for me. They call it the rolling up the mat time. It was the second rolling up of the mat time for me. And as I walked in, I had already reported previously, and he knew from uh, hearing my reports for several years that The thing that plagues me the most is homesickness. I really get lonesome for home. I want to go home. And I was walking into that uh, interview and I was going to say it's time for me to go home. I've been there long enough already and it's time for me to go home. And even when I walked in, he knew I think he knew what I was going to say. He has this uncanny ability to what we think is be psychic, but I I think he just reads uh, people really, really well. He's used to it. So even as I was walking in and ready to get down and do my three bows to him, he started chanting in Pali. And I kind of recognized the chant because I had heard it. He said the chant in Pali, he chanted it in Pali, and then my my friend, the nun, who was translating, translated it in English. And the translation went, If one sees that a greater happiness is found by letting go of a lesser one, the wise person will let go of the lesser happiness. So I did my three bows, and when I got up he said, are you a wise person? <laughs> and, um, and I said, I had told, I told him later after that that I was wanting to go home. And um, anyway it went on, he knew it, and I stayed. So going on retreat is a radical form of renunciation in relationship to what the rest of the world does on their vacations. I bet most of you take your vacation to do a retreat, because that's the time you have. And it's pretty radical compared to the rest of the world. We give up speaking. I mean, who would think when somebody asks you, well, how is your time off? Well, I gave up speaking. And who would think that that's really happiness producing? It's actually one of the scariest things for newcomers to a retreat. But it's the thing that those people, when they leave, say, it was actually one of the most refreshing things I could have ever done. I don't know. We'll, we'll hear later from the ones who are here almost for the first time. We give up uh, entertainment and distractions. I mean, even if you're not taking the eight precepts, you're giving up a huge amount of the distractions that you usually have to available to you in your daily life. You're giving up reading, <sighs> writing, for the most part. I mean, you know, writing notes here. and, But for the most part, um, I hope you're not reading any books in your room. I did that mistake on my very first retreat. I was reading a book about a month-long retreat, and I was in the retreat. <laughs> <laughs> I was in a month-long retreat, and when I told the teacher, the teacher said, duh, what are you doing? Put the book away and just be here, and learn what you have to learn from this retreat. (laughs) So we're giving up sexual activity, and much of our control over food. It's a big renunciation, as many of us know who have food sensitivities, to see what's there, and. Try to work with it and be with how things are. This is a way of all this is a way of simplifying our environment and giving us more challenges and more opportunities to look inward and see what happens when when we're kind of uh, away from all of our distractions, all of the things that we can do when we're when we have to face that inner aversion or boredom. And in our daily life, we just try to fill it up with something else or cover it up with something else. So we let go of comforts, the comforts of home. We let go of the distractions that we find in our home. You know, always, I'll go out to the garden and weed or water. And that pile still stays on my desk, all those emails that I have to answer. So of course, in addition to that, we take the precepts to refine our understanding of letting go, of harming through our speech and our behavior. When we take the precepts, we have a tendency, most of us do, to look more closely at what we are saying, what we are doing, uh, and we try to preserve life the life inside of us and the life outside of us a lot more. So there's a lot of profound renunciation going on, even in this retreat here. It's more than what you might think of of renunciation. You're really practicing a lot of it here. And it gives us the opportunity to know how it feels to let go when we go out into our lives, to know how it feels here in the hall or when you're anywhere in the retreat and you see or hear something uh, about something going on around you and you have this tendency or we all have this tendency to say something to give our opinion or our judgment or how we like it or we don't like it but we refrain we're for the most part unless there's something really dangerous going on We refrain from saying. We hold back our opinion and see, how does this feel? It's a little uncomfortable. It's a lot uncomfortable sometimes. But um, it gives us the practice to refrain, to restrain, to renounce, just putting it out there all the time with our words and our behavior. It saves a lot of energy to do that. So we have uh, more opportunities to have the connection with something deeper within us because of this practice of renunciation that we're doing here. And that's not something that the world can give us. The world is pulling us out all the time. It, we have responsibilities. There are needs that we have to provide to our loved ones. and. We have to share, and all of that is right for us to do. But compared to all of that in your whole year, we take this little bit of time, maybe every year, maybe every other year, maybe for more of us more time than that. Um, We do two retreats a year or more. We take this little bit of time to really go inward, and it's so precious it's so precious." So you've been reading the quotes of each parami every night. And like many of you have remarked here or in other retreats where we've been offering the paramis, we also have had a very strong response and deep connection with Dilgo Kinse Rinpoche's comments and his sentiments on renunciation. In fact, uh, his whole book. Uh, We got this from his book called Journey to Enlightenment. It's a wonderful book, and he had the kind of the the clearest spirit of renunciation that I've ever come across. And uh, his words just continue to reverberate in my heart. You've been reading it every night, but just to include it here, I'd like to repeat it. Renunciation implies a strong wish to free oneself not only from life's immediate sorrows, but from the seemingly unending cycle of conditioned existence. With this renunciation comes a heartfelt weariness and a disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. How many of you have had a response a heart response to this endless request for gratification, approval, and status. Many of you, I bet, yeah, we see just how this is samsara. This is the round and round and round and round we go. Where we stop, nobody knows, except when we can do our practice here of being aware Letting go where we need to let go. Nourishing where we need to nourish. And just to point out that when we practice each one of these paramis, renunciation is automatically being developed as well. Just like when when I spoke about when we develop metta, ill-will is put to the side. Ill-will is displaced when we practice loving-kindness. When we put our minds to loving-kindness, the, the field of our minds are filled with loving-kindness, or more and more filled, and ill-will cannot come in. So I'd just like to go over the rest of the list, so you know how wonderful it is to practice these paramis, and automatically this renunciation is being developed for each one of us. So just pondering on it yourself, reflecting on each one. When we practice generosity we're letting go of the fear of lack. We're letting go of a poverty mentality. We're letting go of stinginess, of kind of that tightness, that holding on. When we practice moral integrity We're letting go of insensitivity to hurting others with our speech and our behavior. Every time we say these precepts, and I would uh, recommend saying them at least once a week to yourself, just going over them, and you will see that you can become more sensitive to your speech and your behavior in the world, your actions in the world. When we develop wisdom, we let go of the comfort zone of naivete. It feels so comfortable just to be naïve sometimes, or just not even caring to know about how things are. We let go of the delusion of seeing things wrongly. We let go of ignorance not caring to know when we develop wisdom uh, sorry when we develop energy we let go of procrastination and laziness developing patience of course we let go of impatience and we let go of this kind of hidden arrogance that life has to revolve around my pace my schedule the things I want to do. When we develop truthfulness, we let go of deceiving others and deceiving ourselves. As I mentioned in my talk the other day, uh, once when Sayadaw Upandita gave a talk, he really stressed the importance of truthfulness. Because he said, how can you experience the truth? How can you know the truth if you cannot speak the truth, if you cannot stand on the truth? So resolve. To develop resolve, let's go of wavering. Let's go of lingering in doubt, lingering in indecisiveness. It lets go of the weakness we have around our courage to do something different. Practicing loving-kindness lets go of ill-will. And a really uh, palpable level, we see that it lets go of disconnection with not just others, but disconnection with oneself. practicing equanimity. Let's go of the opposites of kind of pushing away and holding on. Let's go of fear and preference. And as Steve says, letting go of the habit of dramatizing ordinary experience. You know, when we're, we just get too uh, dramatizing of what's going on, we don't need to. We can stay in the middle path, just speak about, see things as they are. So taking renunciation uh, as a practice itself can be even more powerful than practicing these other ones and just by the by the we, we get to develop renunciation as well. So how do we practice renunciation on an everyday level? I wanted to bring it mostly to what's ordinary for us to do. Where can we see renunciation in ordinary life experiences? And just to mention that if we can take this home as a practice, we really get a chance to get interested in and investigate what's going on inside of us and the places we hang on to, the places where we feel that habitual tendency. It might be through attachment to the pleasant, or it might be through just a blind habit pattern. So where are the areas of our lives that we can let go, and what do we let go into? We let go into experiencing more calm within us and around us. and that's So that's something to really uh, pay attention to. Not just the fact that we're letting go of something, as I'll mention a few of the things, but how does it feel when we do let go, to really pay attention to that moment? Because we might be paying a lot of attention to, when we're speaking with somebody, for example, say, I'm going to let go of needing to say anything. I'm just going to listen. I'm just going to listen. And we have to have so much energy just to do that, that we forget about later. That we want to investigate how does it feel when we've let go. And really there's much more harmony between people. The calm and the sense of peacefulness that we feel inside. Of course it's not always that way sometimes. You know, we're busy thinking, I should have said that, or, <laughs> dang, they got the last word. But really when we look deeply we see there can be a lot more peace. As uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu says, it's like trading candy for gold, when we look at it that way. There's a whole piece on this in Renunciation that he wrote, trading candy for gold. But I I just loved his, his title. I think he uses the word candy because we all know we can become blindly addicted to habit patterns that are no longer useful. They were never really useful in the first place, but for some reason they became a habit pattern in our lives of responding or reacting a certain way because we had some event in our earlier lives that just kind of made that habit pattern go deeply into our hearts, and it's, it's really hard to overcome. So in my own relationships with my home, and in my home with Steve and my, my children and other family members, when I have to let go of the need to be right, or the need to have my opinion heard. Which, even if Steve thinks the opposite, I do a lot of practice around. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> he probably agrees somewhat. <laughs> I do find a lot of relief when I feel that uh, I'm in a a situation with him or someone else in my family, where I've made the resolve, it takes a little bit of resolve ahead of time to say, okay, when we're talking about this, I'm not going to repeat this again. I'm just going to keep quiet on this. And I actually do that, and then we come to a place of harmony between us, I feel a great deal of relief inside of me. It's just like there's so much space. And um, people ask us a lot. I mean, Steve and I have, we have our ups and downs, and there are places where we have to navigate the twists and turns of our relationship. But mostly, if you ask either one of us separately, we would say that the ease of our relationship comes a lot from letting go. Mostly, it comes from letting go. It doesn't come from processing. (laughs) because that gets us more tangled up. It's mostly from just letting go of places where we think we need to make a statement again. So letting go of views and opinions and the need to be right, that's one ordinary uh, experience in life. It's an everyday experience that we might have. When I'm in a store, I'm attracted to colors and beauty. Of course, Steve mentioned last night, I'm the sensual type. That's a nice way of saying I'm the greedy type. (laughs) I I want things. I get attracted to the pleasant. So it's very challenging for me to practice uh, renunciation because I am very attracted to pleasant experience. And so because I'm attracted to pleasant Experience. I have a lot of experience there of seeing what draws, what attracts, where is the stickiness. I can let that sound be in the background, by the way, it doesn't bother me. (laughs) So (laughs) I actually get really happy and relieved when I realize when I'm in a store, I don't need this. Or have you women or even men as knowing Steve, you know, he's like the hunter type. He knows exactly what he wants when he goes into a store and I don't know yet. You know, I have to look <laughs> around. <laughs> That's why our daughter says, "Now mom, focus." and says to Steve, "Now dad, relax." Or what did she say? Float. Float. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, when I go into a store, I see a lot of things, and sometimes I take a lot of things into the dressing room, (laughs) and I try them on, I try them on, and then when I realize nothing fits, I am so relieved. (laughs) Don't you ladies feel that way sometimes? (laughs) It's like, I don't have to buy one more thing that, for one thing, you know, just has a bur- is a burden on our budget. And another thing is that then I have to choose all from all these things and when really I end up choosing black all the time. <laughs> so uh, it's such a relief to let go of that. I came across this Socrates saying, he lived in a, near a market, and he said, I love to go and see all the things I am happy without. <laughs> Uh, it's really um, I heard a talk one time by Sharon Salzberg a long time ago and she was in the Middle East in the market and there, it was a place where Westerners would go and the, the vendor would shout out I have what you need I have what you need and Sharon would go and see well what does he have that I need you know. <laughs> after I heard that talk I have this mantra that I say to myself when all the beautiful colors and shapes and beauty are coming forth to me, saying, I have what you need, and then I say, I have what I need. (laughs) I have what I need. It doesn't always work, but I say it a lot of times. On the other hand, Just recently, right before I came, I was on Amazon website getting something. It's a lot cheaper to buy on Amazon sometimes with free shipping than it is to use my gas to find something in town. And it gives the postal service some business too. So I get something, and then right away after that, it comes up, people who purchase this also purchase (laughs) this. Okay, what do I do? Oh, what did they purchase? Click. And then I'm on to that. And then it says, people who purchase this also purchase this. And then it goes on and on and on and on. And it takes a while for me to realize this is samsara. Oh my God. the, The endless cycle of gratification right in the website in front of me <laughs> and you know with ignorance i don't get it right away you know i'm just so attracted to i'm not just attracted to beauty but i find myself attracted to learning more you know when i when i see oh this new thing look at this new book that can give me more learning and then it, it just gives me a pleasant moment for a moment and so there i go on the Groundhog Day cycle. And finally, you know, I'll say, enough. That's enough. And it, it takes sometimes getting thirsty or going to the ba- needing to go to the bathroom or just having a headache to realize that. So on an everyday le- level, these are the things we can learn. Where can we say enough, as Steve said the other night, one of our friends is a, an executive high-powered executive in a big company. And, and her job is to go around to places, uh, not just her own company, but to other places, and teach when enough is enough. I'm glad she's in the world. It's to see when I need to let go of my preoccupation with myself. That's another thing that I, we can learn to let go of. I have um I have uh, some autoimmune challenges and um I'm I've learned to say about myself that my immune system is a lot stronger than it used to be and I used to have a lot more preoccupation with it than I do now now I just I do have a sense of more courage and less fear around what goes on, what I eat, what I'm around, etc. But I used to think, what will this do to me? What, what? Then I think about what it has done in the past, what it, what it might do now, what it might turn out into the future. A lot of preoccupation with health. It's interesting, you know, there was, um, it was just an afternoon a few months ago, a friend of mine who's an electrician, and we were working with electromagnetic fields in the house. And, um, and I said, Well, I was asking, Well, what can we do something about this one, about around the computer and this one? And he said, Kamala, your body has an amazing capacity to heal itself. This was an electrician, not a health professional, you know, not my personal doctor, not, not my teacher. He, this was my electrician, who who, um, specializes in electromagnetic fields. And he said that to me and it went right into my heart. And every time I get a little concerned I say, this body has an amazing capacity to heal itself. And I just feel a lot less preoccupation about me, mine, who I am, having it be all about me. It's such a relief. So renouncing, <coughs> just relinquishing that, those kinds of fears, renouncing old ideas. This is kind of an ordinary, everyday thing that we may come to, not often maybe, but as John pointed out this afternoon, the idea that um, this is who I am. I, I, I can't develop metta or something like that. Right, John? Something. And then he just said to himself, letting go of that idea, now it's a new idea that this can be developed. Something like that. This is big. Renouncing old ideas that we have about ourselves. That we're a victim of this or that. That we really can't do this or that in, in practice. That we really can't be totally liberated. This opens up a whole new area of practice for us, whole new um, capacities of the mind. Just by having one thought, whole areas of the mind, physical brain, can be opened up, can be known. Identifying, Disidentifying with old ways of being can cause just a total openness instead of that limitation that we had been in. I was raised in a family with a very strong work ethic, especially about women. My mother was a very, very hard worker. She was an immigrant from the Philippines and she lived uh, out her younger lives during World War II at the height of the war in the Philippines and saw many terrible things. And when she came to America she worked very hard to bring her relatives to America and sent uh, my uncles and aunties money so they could come over and we helped them along. She worked so hard and it wasn't easy to see her do that and all my my the women in my family were were really strong worked very hard like that. She was a person who was not exactly a slave driver, but if I was sitting down in the middle of the day, she would tell me what needed to be done in the house, and I, I could see how hard she worked. So I would get up and do it. And it's it's hard for me even to this day to sit down and lay down in the middle of the day. It's easy for Steve to take a rest in the middle of the day. That's his. Um, I'm not going to say anything. Sarcastic. (laughs) It's easy for him. Of course, he wakes up at three in the morning a lot, but it's not easy for me. I just keep going and going, but I've learned to have a little more of a pace about myself, and take that cup of tea and just sit down and sit in the patio, the the outside, and just look around. Oops. So that's what my family was all about. And for a long time, that's what I said about myself. Well, that's who I am. I'm a hard-working woman. And I raised three children almost on my own for a long time. And that's who I am. But in years, um, years ago, I learned to take more of a rest. And I would allow myself <coughs> times to go on retreat and times to really take time to smell the flowers. And I saw, when I looked back, how I let go of that. It wasn't like overnight, but it was gradually that I let go of that kind of need to always be working, to always be moving. I used to teach, start teaching in the Dharma, started about 20 years ago, and I still wouldn't give up my job. I I would get off the plane from teaching a retreat and go right to my work and begin working on the same... I, I might get home in the morning from taking a, a red-eye and go right to work again. So, it was a poignant part of my time uh, to look back and see how I've let go. And one of the one of the times when I saw what I was doing the most was when I was in a retreat. And I think it was one of the first longer retreats that I'd taken. The first retreat I took really was a month long. I just dove right into it. But mostly I was either asleep or balancing my checkbook or something like that, to be truthful. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I. I I heard a story during this one retreat that I had taken, and it really made me wake up to the fact of what I was just kind of attached to. It was a reading from parables and portraits. Uh, The author was Stephen Mitchell, and uh, it was actually Joseph, our colleague Joseph Goldstein, who was reading this. And this was a story about Sisyphus. Now this is a, a story in a Greek myth and it was about gods who had condemned Sisyphus to ceaselessly r- rolling a rock up a hill. And at, when he got it finally up to the hill it would roll back down to the bottom and he would have to go down and push it back up again. And what the gods thought that there was no more dreadful punishment than this futile and hopeless labor. Apparently they condemned condemned him because he gave away some secret. So this is the translation that Stephen Mitchell gave about the myth of Sisyphus. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain, and again up the mountain, forever and ever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the serious, mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he is permitted to step aside, to let the rock hurtle to the bottom and go home. Mm-hmm. This had a huge effect on things that I was holding on to, you know, things that weren't really beneficial to the ongoingness of my spiritual practice or uh, me as a human being, just the places I was holding on to in life of beingness of um, identifying with being this person or that person, and identifying at times with being a victim of uh, my life, say for example in the Philippines. So what is it, or where is it in your life where there could be some letting go of any identification that you might be having with who you think you are, who you have been, or what people have done to you in the past, letting go of the past? Or is it letting go of impatience or arrogance, the need to be right, the kind of habit of being a victim, being lost in the past? Can you make room for the present? So just by relinquishing the thoughts we have that fuel all of that habituation. A lot of what we're learning here is not to get entangled with our thoughts. Because our thoughts are the ways that we solidify a sense of self around everything. So on the deepest level, those are the everyday levels really, but on the deepest level we're letting go of greed, of hatred and delusion. The habit patterns are delusion. Hatred is when we push against life in the ways that we do. And greed is when we hold on. So renunciation at its core is letting go of attachment, really. So I'd like to speak uh, more about that than the other of hatred and delusion. It's to remember that attachment really is to the pleasant feeling of the situation, of the relationship, of the thing, of the material thing, of the need to be right. It's the attachment to the pleasant feeling that comes around it. It's not to the thing itself. It comes out of contact with that thing. pleasant or unpleasant feeling, or even neither uh, pleasant or unpleasant, neutral feeling, comes up with contact with every sense door. Whatever is seen, is heard, is smelled, is touched, uh, is thought of, It comes in the mental realm. Whatever contact there is of the five sense doors and the sixth sense door of mentality comes with it uh, a feeling. Uh, It's not the emotional feeling we talk about in everyday life, and psychological life, but it's this feeling of either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And that is what attachment is looking for. That is what craving is craving for. A lot of suffering comes from that. Why is there a lot of suffering that comes from that? Maybe not in the moment. In the moment, there is pleasantness. But the suffering comes because there's an impermanence of the pleasantness itself. It goes away. And maybe the suffering isn't great. But time after time after time, when things disappear, when things get broken or lost or, um, or people die or decline, get sick, there is a lot of sorrow that comes with that there is a lot of suffering that comes with that. Suffering comes because nothing lasts, neither the contact, nor the thing, the experience, or the pleasant experience. Suzuki Roshi says, renunciation is is not giving up the things of the world, not giving up the things of the world, but knowing that they go away, So, of course, we can enjoy what there is to be enjoyed in that moment that there is the enjoyment, but it's also to know that they dissolve, that they go away. And true renunciation is having the wisdom to know this. Of course, the first noble truth, uh, for many of you who know the Four Noble Truths, and some of you who don't, then, um, in time, you will be hearing the, the Dharma talk on that. Maybe not here, but other places. It's kind of like the, the baseline of understanding, of all Buddhists' understanding. The first noble truth is that there is the truth of suffering. There is the truth of suffering. And when we can't face that, we're in delusion, we're in denial. We're maybe in pushing it away because it's too hard to face. The second noble truth is there is a cause for that suffering, and the cause is craving. And to complete, it says, there is an end to suffering, and that end can be when there is an end to craving. And the fourth noble truth is that there is a path to the end of suffering, which is the Eightfold Noble Path. But I wanted to take just a few minutes to talk about craving itself. It deserves its own Dharma talk. In a longer retreat, you would have gotten one. But just to go over it so you can kind of um, piece it together with this understanding of renunciation. I want to take two Pali words that describe or that have descriptions of craving or wanting or clinging. The first word is raga. Raga in its direct translation means lust. It doesn't just mean lust for sexual um, pleasant experience or sexual experience at all. It means lust for anything. And it's described as a state of lack, needing and wanting, always seeking fulfillment, But its drive is inherently unsatiable. As long as it endures, it maintains a sense of lack. This is the human predicament that we're in. This is what the world is run on. This is what samsara's engine is, this raga. It's constant wanting, seeking happiness by feeding the need for gratification, approval, profit, and status. Seeking gratification. Seeking happiness, actually, in all the wrong places. Not knowing where there can be a deep and really fulfilling kind of happiness, the, the happiness that is peace. So that's raga, the description of raga. Then there's tanha tanha means craving, actually, and it's described or depicted as constant thirst. It's like drinking salt water and wanting more (coughs) and more. There's constant thirst, but we drink the wrong thing. We take in the wrong thing. We take in things that, in its very um, beingness, We want more and more because of what we're taking in. We crave to see pleasant things, to hear pleasant sounds, to taste pleasant tastes, to smell pleasant odors, to feel pleasant sensations, to have mental experiences that are pleasant. So I want to point out that it's not the the thing that is being craved for. It's the pleasant experience that we perceive to be in the thing that we are craving for. It causes a lot of suffering. So much suffering originates from craving. So much unnecessary agitation and movement. So I want to read to you From the words of the Buddha. And this is a a section called Rooted in Craving. So he's speaking to the monks and he says, monks, I shall teach you nine things rooted in craving. Listen and attend carefully. What are the nine things rooted in craving? Because of craving there is pursuit. Because of pursuit, there is acquisition. Because of acquisition, there is decision. Because of decision, there is desire and lust. Because of desire and lust, there is selfish tenacity. Because of selfish tenacity, there is possessiveness. Because of possessiveness, there is avarice. Because of avarice, there is concern for protection. And for the sake of protection, there is the seizing of cudgels and weapons and various evil, unwholesome things such as quarrels, strife, dissension and offensive talk, slander and lies. These are the nine things rooted in craving. You can see how one thing leads to another, that's why it said that the source of suffering is craving. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, craving arises in the negligent. The craving of a person addicted to careless living grows like a creeper, jumping from life to life like a fruit-loving monkey in the forest. So it's said with attachment and craving there's there's pleasant experience of course but there's also two great disappointments the first one of course is not getting what we want for a lot of things we crave it's not satisfied so dukkha you know disappointment and the other thing is that we get what we want but it's never enough we want more or we want to protect it or we um, want it again, later, and we go through all those nine things again and again and again. So to practice renunciation requires us to turn the attention towards the feeling of craving, towards the actual experience of attachment and clinging. When we really turn the attention <coughs> to that and turn it, turn it away from the object, and turn it towards the experience, we see how much agitation is in the mind. When we see that agitation, then wisdom can arise and the ability to let go can come. So it's easier to let go when we see craving in and of itself is suffering. (laughs) Craving in and of itself is suffering. Again, not necessarily the objects. They're connected to, but of itself, craving, clinging. So, of course, I want to say right now that there is wanting for things in life that are good for us and good for others. And that isn't under this craving, under this heading of craving and clinging and attachment. That's something else. So letting go of attachment is not a loss. It's not losing anything. Letting go and practicing renunciation is a way of letting go of suffering. It's a way of gaining inner peace and a deeper fulfillment in life. So I'd like to read from the Third Zen Patriarch to close. It's about the Great Way. The Great Way is not difficult for those who are unattached to their preferences. Let go of longing and aversion, and everything will be perfectly clear. Cling to a hair's breadth of distinction, and heaven and earth are set apart. If you want to realize the truth, don't be for or against. As vast as infinite space, it is perfect and lacks nothing. Because you select and reject, you can't perceive true nature. Don't get entangled in the world. Don't lose yourself in emptiness. Be at peace in the isness of all things and all errors will disappear by themselves. So let's sit for a moment.